Uh, hey, everybody, thank you guys so much for coming. We're at the St. Louis Seminar, my hometown. If you have to leave early, we understand. Uh, and for questions that we didn't get to, that you don't see on this YouTube uh, video, you can ask it on our forums. And uh, we'll try to answer it there. Uh, also slide in Austin's DMs, he loves that. Yeah, I look at I look at all the DMs I get on every day and make sure I'm fully caught up all the time on all DMs I get. So yes, Austin first, then the forums. Okay, uh, we're gonna go through these curated questions and uh, try to provide some nuanced answers. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that the model of training sensitivity is more static over a career that can't change, uh, or is it more dynamic depending on other factors that are determining responsiveness at that particular time? Kind of having a difficult time understanding. I think they're asking if your training responsiveness is variable over time or if it's pretty much static over the course of a training career. Oh. I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing to think about. Sure. Uh, I don't know. I think that your training responsiveness does, in fact, change over both in the acute, like, acute uh, setting and then chronically. Acutely, like when your environment and psychosocial inputs change dramatically. So uh, again, periods of high stress or super, super low stress, higher motivation, low motivation. I think all of that uh, portends uh, change in outcomes for how much training adaptation you get from a given level of training stress. Because the, in, the internal load is likely changing and internal yes. load drives adaptation. Since I didn't say that like 45 times, yes, that's correct. like the important takeaway from that. But then chronically, your training adaptation is likely as you near your peak, your training adaptation is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller from more progressively more and more training stress. And then as you start detraining, you're, you're, you're really going to uh, uh, kind of reverse roles a little bit as you become less and less trained. Your, ad your adaptations actually might increase Maybe. in magnitude, uh, but you're still just trying to hang on. Yeah, I think that we've discussed before how from a training sensitivity standpoint or training resistance being a spectrum of the same phenomenon, the more trained you get, the more training resistant you become, right? Yep. Meaning that a given dose of training stimulus does less and less for you. That's why we PR like, you know, maybe once a year or something like that, well, like no, a true one RM effort if we're, we have to put in a ton of training to realize that sort of a, an, an adaptation and performance, a huge amount of training compared to when we were in our you know, earlier, more training sensitive days, getting big adaptations per unit of training stimulus. But I definitely think that on a shorter time scale, you know, uh, uh, say you know, day to day, month to month, week to week, whatever, that it's likely variable depending on all these other factors uh, that can influence internal load. Yeah, I would also just not, I tend to not think about training responsiveness in discrete like bouts, meaning that like, for instance, I don't think that you have a stress, a recovery and an adaptation that are all separate from each other. Rather, you have accumulated stresses and recoveries taking place 24 seven and adaptations are taking place 24 seven. And then when you get again, that balance shift from the negative fatigue, more that shifts more towards positive fitness adaptations, you are able to realize, potentially realize the improvement in performance from those fitness adaptations that it's always occurring all the time. So it's not like one workout generated X amount of fitness adaptation, and then you're able to realize that at some discrete point in yeah. the future. More, more likely is that a series of workouts has generated a series of stress that has all culminated to, to drive a certain fitness adaptation. So I just don't think about it just as yeah. discreetly. Okay. Do you find that physicians are less receptive to the idea of sarcopenia in patients with obesity? Yes. Should we move on? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, anecdotally, I get a lot of funny looks from physicians when the patient is obese. 
This would also be true of, hey, this patient meets Aspen criteria for malnutrition. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes to both. Uh, so the, the sarcopenic obesity is a big subcategory within sarcopenia and, and technically obesity, but it's underdiagnosed yep. and then undertreated as a uh, secondary to that. Uh, and then I think people are more dismissive of that as well. So when you're, when you look, not just look at somebody visually, but even on a chart, you look at a person's BMI and their BMI is 35, 40 or something like that, but they they have, you know, obvious muscle loss in their appendicular skeleton and their function is very, very low secondary to just being weak, having low amounts of lean body mass. So you're saying, well, this person would benefit from losing body fat, but also benefit from gaining muscle mass. Yeah. That's hard to square in your mind uh, for a lot of physicians who are unfamiliar with the term sarcopenic obesity and then the prevalence incidence, all that other sort of stuff. Uh, the ESPN guidelines actually you know, talk about this in particular and recommend a high protein diet, resistance training as well. And then uh, they also uh, do recommend, obviously, uh, uh, body fat reduction via uh, calorie reduction in, the, in, this, in this as well. So. And I think what you're, but that's not obviously happening in a hospitalized setting, so. Yeah, I definitely think that physicians, I mean, even um, having these discussions among my colleague, colleagues, they're generally, you know, we can pretty easily recognize somebody who is uh, truly what we call cachectic, meaning like their skin and bones, like the end stages of certain types of conditions, like end stage of cancer, heart failure, COPD, cirrhosis, chronic kidney disease, many of these. Uh, and some autoimmune conditions can result in just com muscle wasting, but cachexia in particular is refers to a situation where there's a loss of muscle mass and a loss of fat mass. So you're based like actually skin and bones, right? Sarcopenia specifically refers to the muscle mass loss and you can have sarcopenia with an excess of body fat. So that's kind of a slightly different situation from cachexia where that's just total energy and muscle wasting, low body fat, low muscle mass. Now we're talking low muscle mass, high body fat is sarcopenic obesity. And there are basically strata of risk that increase between normal kind of lean body mass and normal fat mass or increased fat mass compared to sarcopenic patients do worse. And then sarcopenic obese patients do even worse than yeah. just the sarcopenic patients do because not only do they have the complications from sarcopenia, but they can have the metabolic complications from having obesity, metabolic complications referring to the cholesterol problems, insulin problems, uh, high blood pressure problems, diabetes, things like that, that also bring in their own risk into the equation. And then you can get even more uh, uh, granular with this. And if you've measured bone mass and the bone mass is low, you can have something called osteosarcopenic obesity, where you have low bone mass, low muscle mass. Cause remember I described how those tend to track together, right? So if somebody has a lot of lean body mass, probably includes their bone, but you can have low muscle mass, low bone mass and excess body fat. That's a common situation that's really quite dangerous, right? Because you have all the complications of sarcopenia. If you're to suffer a fall related to that, you're more risk of having a fracture because you have osteopenia and you have the metabolic complications of obesity. So that's a bad combination to have. And those are the people who above all else, more important than it is for anybody else, need to train. Sure. Yeah. You recommend lentils. Lentils? Just kidding. They're great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, question number three. What does the process look like for people who carry bad narratives with them into your consultations? How do you redirect them into what the evidence actually says? Yeah, that's a great question. A, lo a lot of this uh, has to do with uh, motivational interviewing skills. And, and I, I don't, that doesn't just mean like listening to people and, and being nice. There are active skills that have 
proven benefits in the sort of clinical counseling realm, trying to explore these different ideas and narratives that people have. So in particular, what I like to do, because this happens with clients that I work with that I'm not even working with on like a, they don't come to me from pain rehab consultation. Because you, you think about the people who come to Barbell Medicine for pain and rehab uh, consultation, I do think Derek and Mike are some of the best in the industry at, at doing this, but they're already sold on this. We don't have to like- Sometimes. Yeah, that's Not true. all the time. Not all the time, right. Uh, what I would say, mo most of their experiences with people who are, know what we, who we are, what we do, and kind of our, our, our methods. Rather, the people that I coach, not all of them are up to speed necessarily on our pain science stuff and, and our message and, and stuff. So that's a, a little bit uh, more unique situation. So uh, a lot of the times that I, I start by trying to um, get the individuals to tell me what they think is going on, why they're afraid or what they're afraid of happening, what they expect to kind of happen, just elicit all of these uh, sort of uh, this this narrative, and then go from there by trying to uh, uh, not correct, because I don't want the writing reflex to come up where I tell them something and then, then immediately it challenges their like core beliefs or something and they want to tell me that I'm wrong or otherwise dismiss what I have to say, but rather try to lead them in a different direction. You're trying to lead them through this conversation in a very nice way that doesn't challenge their beliefs directly, but rather gives them thoughtful questions to sort of al allow it, uh, the possibility of them being, have their preconceived expectation and notions to be wrong without them appearing to be wrong directly. Sure. You, you, yeah. you know, because it, it's basically a less confrontational way of leading them through the evidence rather than the opposite example is, yeah, actually, uh, you know, even if you do have a herniation, doesn't matter because in the next you know six to nine months it's going to resorb anyway that's probably actually not even a herniated sim uh, disc type symptomology because those are unreliable findings and so you'll be fine not only does a person not feel like you heard them right but they also don't feel like they were able to express themselves and all of the, the things that are going into their thought process uh, and so they're not even in a position for you to tell them like actually there might be a different side to the story so building that narrative initially like eliciting that and then kind of walking them through in a uh, a step-by-step -step process that doesn't co directly confront um maybe some of their beliefs and belief systems is a, is a strat one strategy that i like to use yeah. uh, for motivational interviewing and this is just an aside and i'll let austin uh take the reins after this uh, the rolnick and milner uh book is pretty good we got that in medical school actually i forgot about it and somebody was like you guys should up your motivational interviewing you know game read this book and i was like i already have this book <laughs> i feel like i read it at some point or was supposed to read it uh and so i got to sit down and reread it and there's just a lot of like cool nugget like pearls in there that i had I do in, in, intuitively uh, because I either I was exposed to it <laughs> or, or this is part of my communi communication style, but I think people who haven't had that sort of uh, experience in the professional setting would benefit. From Even if you're not a doctor and you're a trainer or coach Correct. or something yep. like that, these skills are yep. useful. So it's just a book called Motivational Interviewing yep. by Pretty those good. guys would recommend. Yeah, yeah. my, my process for this is in some t sometimes it's similar. I, so the question was, what does it look like to deal with these kind of harmful or bad or incorrect narratives? And do you, how do you redirect them to what the evidence actually says? I don't always, I mean, I frequently don't try to like bring scientific evidence into the discussion with the individual. Cause again, they want to feel heard. And if you start throwing like research at them, that's not going to yeah. get you anywhere. Just so read this study it's good for us to know the research, yeah, yeah. but we don't need to just like throw PubMed at people. That's not going to do anything. 
Um, my approach to this probably looks a little bit different than what Jordan described. And there are some situations where I might bring in evidence like the discussion of, yeah, a, a substantial proportion of herniated discs heal on their own in a few months. Yeah, that's a good little tidbit to have to tell people, right? I think that more often what I'll do for in this situation is either find aspects of their history that conflict with their understanding or their belief, or have them do things that then conflict with their expectations. That's called expectancy violation. In other words, so to give some examples, somebody might say that they have severe knee pain due to bone on bone arthritis in their knee, for example, right? Or they have back pain due to a herniated disc that they feel like has been there for a long time and is never gonna heal. Well, a simple question that you might ask is, do you ever have days where your symptoms are better and symptoms are worse? Like, do your symptoms ever fluctuate? Because of course they do, for all the reasons that I described in my lecture. And say, yeah, I have some days where I don't feel any pain at all and some days where it's excruciating and I can't get out of bed. It's like, well, I have a hard time understanding how that might happen or how, how, might, how can you explain how your symptoms fluctuate if you have bone on bone all the time or if your disc is you know, herniated and pressing on that nerve all the time? How, how is that possible? Shouldn't you be having symptoms all the time? Or do you think that something else might be affecting your symptoms? And they're like, you know, I guess there could be something else that might influence my symptoms being better on some days than another. Maybe we can work through this and figure out what are the patterns that uh, are, are more consistent on days when you have better symptoms. And they're maybe like, well, it feels better when I'm doing this particular activity, which is always some activity that they, you know, really enjoy or are looking forward to doing or something like that. And it's much worse on days when I've had horrible sleep or I have a ton of stress or something with my family or whatever, you know, other factors that can influence that kind of experience. And so I've found something that conflicts with their understanding and that can get my foot in the door to, hey, maybe it's not all about the tissues here, right? Maybe there's something else besides just the bone and the bone in your knee or the disc and your and your neuroforaminal space in your, yeah, right. in your spine or something like that. So that would be one thing from like a historical discussion perspective or alternatively uh, from an experience situation, somebody might say, oh, I have back pain and I'm afraid that if I bend over that something horrible is going to happen. Well, I might coach them into gradually bending over and getting them to the point where they can do an activity and prove to themselves that what they expected was going to happen does not in fact happen, right? That might require a lot of coaching and reassurance and working through the process. But if I can get somebody to, you know, with knee osteoarthritis to sit down and stand up out of a chair a few times and their symptoms don't get wildly worse, and maybe that violates their expectations to the point where I can start to build some positive momentum from there. So I really like the expectancy violation piece here yep. to try to, uh, just plant a seed of doubt about their existing understanding of things. And then that can blossom into, uh, uh, you know, this new narrative that I'm trying to build up uh, in their minds uh, to get them engaged in the process of working towards recovery. Yeah, I actually think that's, and it's an important point also that like what we do here, like it's not like we neuralize the the person and then as soon at the end of that you know like from men in black that thing and then afterwards they're pain free and they're just like wow i've never experienced that you, after you explain the biopsychosocial model to me <laughs> no pain <laughs> yeah uh but but rather and this is it's more like the plot of the movie inception <laughs> right it's evidenced by the viol the the expectation violation thing that once you've planted the seed of doubt and you get somebody to break this idea like oh this must be bad I have these fears, uh, this, you know, I, making things worse, that they're more accepting of like, yeah, like I have some pain right now, I'm gonna get better. 
I know the steps that I need to take to get better and I'm actively involved in that process. And so that process both gets to start and then subsequently end sooner because they're yeah. actively involved and you've broken that cycle. It's not again, like, boom, you're pain free that, you know, here's, here's the invoice. Yeah. Uh, but it's just as difficult of a process of behavior change as all the stuff you discussed on day one with obesity and stuff like that. Yep. But I think probably the theme of this weekend is behavior change and self-efficacy, right? Would you say if we had to distill it down? Yeah. Just like, it's you hard know, to do, but yeah, sometimes it do be like that. Sometimes it'd be like that though. But you know, <laughs> you're a resilient human. You're powerful yeah. and capable of change. Yeah. All right. Question number four. That was like really home, like, like meaningful. Yeah, man. All right. Is there a correlation between oral contraceptives and tendon or ligamentous ruptures? I see that you have. Uh, yeah, I wanted to. I was curious about this. I thought it was a good question. So I pulled I, I went out and did some scouring while sure. Jordan was lecturing. And hey. uh, so I had never heard of any association between oral contraceptives and tendon or ligamentous ruptures. <laughs> the theory or the concern behind it has to do with the idea that certain female hormones like progesterone, for example, can induce laxity in some of these connective tissue structures. And if they induce laxity, then you may be at an increased risk of some sort of an injury, uh, or rupture or, or tendinopathy or something like that. And so uh, it turns out that females in general, there's pretty consistent evidence, particularly in the realm of ACL ruptures, for example, that females are way higher risk than males of uh, experiencing ACL rupture, upwards of eight times greater risk in, in sports that are somewhat demanding on the ACL, for example. Strength training is definitely among our biggest tools in mitigating this problem. Getting uh, both men and women to train uh, for uh, strength training is one of our biggest tools for reducing the risk of ACL rupture here. But the question had to do with uh, a correlation between oral contraceptives and these sorts of injuries. And so found some data. One was from a paper by Canopa in 2019. This was a systematic review. I think they looked at 29 studies and they ended up pulling out a subset of them. Two or three were like soup was were fairly high quality. The rest were of mixed or lower quality. They said that the higher quality studies suggest that oral contraceptives decrease a female patient's risk of ACL injuries and ACL laxity. The strength of these findings, however, is weak. So they found some evidence to suggest that actually oral contraceptives may decrease the risk of some of these things. And the thinking or the proposed mechanism was that when you have a combined oral contraceptive, which again contains uh, uh, estrogen and progesterone, it tends to actually shut down the full kind of uh, dynamic flux of the, the, the full uh, kind of hormonal cycle over the menstrual cycle. And so if to whatever extent those hormonal fluctuations have a role in, uh, uh, in these, in, uh, risk of these injuries, shutting down that cycle by the through the use of oral contraceptives may mitigate that risk. So overall, I'm not sure how confident we should be that they decrease the risk because some of that evidence is a bit weak, but I definitely don't think we have evidence to say that oral contraceptives increase the risk of these things. And that would not be anywhere on my radar as far as a concern if a woman was on an oral contraceptive and was playing a sport or resistance trainer or something like that. And that's not something that I'd be concerned about compared to something like, oh, this, you know, this, this person is on a, a Cipro antibiotic for a prolonged period of time for something. That's a medication where it's like, yeah, that antibiotic definitely has a, a risk of tendon rupture. Um, and that's something that I would be a bit more concerned about. Whereas oral contraceptives, not really an issue. You working for big pharma? On the side. On the side. Yes. So here's the real question. I work for big generic. Big generic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah big, big Walmart. Yeah. Uh, what do you think a bigger problem is uh, with respect to women in uh, strength training? You know, the, the risks of oral contraceptive induced 
uh, gains attenuation or unwanted pregnancy? Yeah, probably the latter. Yeah, just from a population base, <laughs> probably the latter. So like telling people to stop taking oral contraceptives when you are not the prescribing physician seems just like a bad move, you know, bad juju. So maybe, you know, stop doing that on the internet. It's you, stop it. Question number five, what is Austin's favorite whiskey? This is oddly specific. Yeah. People want to know. <laughs> All right, what's your favorite whiskey? So I'm a rye. You're a rye guy? In general, more often. I like bourbon too, but I right. rye more often. So the Thomas, Thomas H. Handy rye is my favorite rye. It's excellent. Yes. That. Question answered. Yep, boom, next one. <laughs> uh, I, I've been really liking that CYPB. Oh yeah. From uh, Weller. The story is, so this is funny, my friend Daniel J, who owns a gym in Santa Cruz, uh, he picked us up uh, three bottles of these. He kept two for himself, got me one. And I think he paid $39 for these bottles of Weller, create your own bourbon. Create your perfect bourbon. Create your perfect bourbon, yeah. And anyway, and as soon as, like when you brought it to me, I go, I feel like this is way more expensive than $40. I'm just gonna Google, like, what's this going for now? Well, that's the, that would be the retailer, the MSRP, but whiskey secondary market is just insanely expensive. Yeah. That bottle probably goes for $700. $700. Yeah. And I go, and we literally had just opened mine. Like I just opened it and I go, do you want me to like put this label back on? Like, yeah. And he goes, no man, it's for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mouth closed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, how would you handle a patient who's very, very dependent or possibly even reluctant towards increasing self-efficacy? Uh, I actually have a few clients uh, that are within this realm. Um, but it's fine because that our relationship is still appropriate for the um, type of uh, relationship that I'm willing to engage in. Um, now you may have different values, different availability, different wants, needs, etc. And a, a, a person may, uh, who is very, very de uh, uh, dependent may want even more than what I'm willing to offer right now. And so in which, what do you do in that case? So you have a few options. One, setting the expectations about what you are and are not willing to do and how you are and are not willing to engage. So for instance, if a client really wanted my personal cell phone number, uh, that's a no for me. I just, I just don't do it because I don't want to uh, uh, engage in that type of personal uh, connection while I may or may not be available for uh, providing coaching insight. But I'm very responsive to emails and very responsive to Instagram messages. So, and they know that. This is all some uh, expectations that have been set. Um, on the other hand, you may be totally fine with that. So again, different values. You have to draw different sort of boundaries. Um, but what I what I found is when it's compromising their ability to actually see progress because they're so so dependent is actually very similar to your expectation violation thing because they almost feel paralyzed like I need you to tell me what to do and instead of just uh, enabling them and say fine I'm gonna do it I it's just a, a deeper conversation I'm like well what do you think you should do and they'll say something like I don't know and you're like, okay, well, let's bracket this. So for instance, the person I'm thinking of in particular was like, I cannot pick my weights. I need you to tell me exactly what weights to lift every single session. That's what I would prefer. And I'm like, I understand that. However, because I know that your performance level on a given day is 100% guaranteed to be in flux, and I will not always be there to tell you, I feel like we need to develop these skills. So if I was trying to pick a set of five repetitions at RPE nine, what is a good range for you? What is the best, on your best day, do you think you could do for a set of five on a squat? And then she gave me a number. I said, and on your worst day, what do you think you would do for a set of five in that same intensity range? And she gave me another number and I go, great. 
that's your bracket. That's where you're gonna start. Start on the low end, and then you're able to add weight until you hit that high end. She goes, okay, I can do that. Because again, you've literally just worked through that single problem, and you've given them a tool uh, and a sort of way to view the problem that they thought was insurmountable. Um, so it challenges, again, mm -hmm. what, they initially, what they initially had. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people may have unrealistic just expectations about what the coaching relationship looks like. And I think that you have to determine what type of coach you're gonna be, what type of uh, interaction you're gonna have with them, and then start that from the, from the beginning. And so, you know, if you're three or four months in and you haven't done that, well, you gotta do it now. Uh, but I do like that expectation violation for this particular situation. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good example. I mean, the, the theme of behavior change continues here. And within the world of behavior change, uh, if you're having difficulty with behavior change, the number one thing that you need to do and the number one thing that we identified and pointed out in the lecture is you need to identify the barriers. So he identified the barrier in this particular situation. Where was this person having difficulty? And it had to do with selecting weights. And he proposed a skill or a strategy to work around that barrier. And this is the case for every single type of behavior change. If somebody is having difficulty, your task is to identify the barrier and then try to develop a skill or a strategy to work around it. Now, you may be able, you may have the knowledge, the experience, you may have some skills and strategies in your tool bag that you can offer this person. Or it may be a situation that maybe you've never experienced before. Maybe you don't know how to work around this. And your options are to either provide your best guess and experiment with this individual, right? And then you can learn from the experience too, or you may refer to somebody who you trust to help somebody work around uh, some of these issues who may have more of a knowledge base, more of an experience base, maybe an expert in that particular field, right? So if you're like a coach and you have somebody who is dealing with severely disordered eating, Right? We need to develop some behavior change. Maybe you don't have the skills, the strategies, the knowledge, the understanding base to actually help somebody work through that, which is probably the case. So a good option would be to refer that person to somebody who does have the uh, yeah. kind of base of experience and knowledge and skills to help somebody work through that. Uh, but again, all of this is identifying barriers, developing skills and strategies to work around them so that we can build the self-efficacy so that people can self-manage. That's been the theme from the first five minutes of this weekend when I was talking is the idea of self-managing around these things. The opposite of this is dependency, where, I mean, he could have just fed off of that person and said, yeah, you definitely need me to pick your weights every session. You need me to watch every rep that you do. Otherwise, you're gonna hurt yourself and you're gonna need me to do this for you for the rest of your life. Keep paying me. Yeah, right. can't, can't give you the keys to the castle. <laughs> right, right, that this is like protected knowledge. That's not what we want, right? No. So. Open source. Yeah, all right, thanks. Cool. How would you, oh, same question. You talked about the best predictor uh, for improving the function of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle, muscle fibers is training history. That's not true. So it sounds like you can change them over time. Yes, you can. If someone genetically has more of one of the, or one, uh, ooh, if someone genetically has more of one or the other, can you change that through training? No. Okay, so I answered all that. Moving on. Uh, so what I said was <laughs> the I'm glad best- I included that so you yeah. can clarify this. Yes, yes. Well, the best predictor for portion, the proportion of fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fibers is the sport and level of that sport that people participate in. Meaning that uh, if it is a power dominant sport like Olympic weightlifting and you participate at the, at the international level, you're very much more likely to have a high percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers than somebody who participates in a, as a marathon 
at the regional level or you know local level. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you can shift between type one and type two fibers. That's not been shown unless you actually literally cut the nerve and then re-innervate the nerve into a different motor unit. You actually do see uh, that change in experimental models. What we see, uh, what we do see in vivo in the human body with response to training, is that you get a, a switch between type 2A and type 2B muscle fibers. Type 2A muscle fibers being low velocity, high force production, somewhat fatigue resistant muscle fibers just as a general kind of description and type 2B muscle fibers being high velocity, high force, not fatigue resistant at all. So if you're in sports that involve sprinting, jumping, punching, kicking, high rates of force production at high velocities, you would want those type 2B fibers to be selected for. So your training should reflect that. So for example, if you had a sprinter, 100 meter sprinter, right? Uh, and you were in charge of training them, then most of their training should be done at high velocities. Heavy sets of five or six or four, whatever rep range, it's all arbitrary, it's made up. Uh, at heavy, heavy weights with low bar speeds would be deleterious to their progress because you're then inducing a change from those fast, uh, high velocity uh, force producing uh, muscle fibers to the low velocity uh, muscle fibers, or in other words, type 2B to type 2A, and you wouldn't want that. Um, also, uh, uh, things you might include would be maybe some of the Olympic lifts uh, for that population or jumping or plyometrics, uh, stuff like that. So it's just gonna be specific to the type of training and goals that you, uh, you have for the person as far as what, uh, if you should include um, high velocity work or not. Now, I made a case during the programming lecture that I would prefer for non-specialized athletes to incorporate a wide range of training intensities, tr uh, exercise variations, uh, and uh, rep ranges. So then the next, the logical question then is, what about speed work? If you're going, you're going on and on about this high velocity force production stuff. Why doesn't the average Joe need to train for high velocity force production? And my answer to you is if he or she is not involved in a sport at some sort of competitive level that's meaningful to them, then I think it's a waste of training time for them from a health standpoint. Meaning that they're gonna get all the benefits they need from resistance training with respect to improvements in strength, power, and lean body mass without ever having to focus uh, and sacrifice, therefore sacrifice training time for high velocity training. That being said, if they were like, look, man, I play in this rec softball league and I really need to increase my, my bat speed. Okay, we can do some high velocity work then or somebody who's like, I'm uh, uh, MMA curious and wanna get better at MMA. I may include some high velocity work for them, even if they're only rolling twice a week, you know, even if they're not technically specializing for that sport. Uh, on the other hand, if the person doesn't care enough to, to really compete at any sort of level, then I'm just not gonna uh, uh, sacrifice their training time for what I would consider to be uh, a really not useful training goal for them. You guys notice how he just had like an entire back and forth between himself for like the past 10 minutes? I do that. You did the, on the other hand, like four times. So, so four hands. <laughs> he does that sometimes. Well, somebody asked you, they were like, who would win in an argument, you or Jordan? 
And then your response was, well, Jordan would just argue with himself. Yeah, so, and, I and I don't care enough. Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> True. All right. Resistance training is great and all, but what would you suggest for patients who present with chronic pain and no desire to train with weights? Obviously, there are benefits outside of pain to train, but what other modalities, interventions have you found to be effective? Yeah, so I don't think that uh, this, the, the context of this question is exercise for the treatment or improvement of chronic or persistent pain states. And for that purpose, I don't think that these individuals have to lift weights. You just don't, right? Obviously that's our bias as we like people to do that, but you don't have to. Um, you can get equivalent, we have no evidence to suggest that you can get better outcomes from resistance training, lifting weights compared to any other form of exercise for pain related conditions. Of course, you know, as I mentioned, you'll hear people say, oh, you're, you have pain because you're weak and you need to get strong and that's why your pain will go away. That's not the case and that's not how this works. There are so many different levels of uh, changes in the, uh, uh, in the individual, at the individual level from their neurological state, psychological state, biological things that can change over the course of training that might result in an improvement in pain if they resistance train, but that doesn't mean that the mechanism of pain improvement was an increase in strength. So really what we aim to do for people who have chronic or persistent pain states is, you know, typically these people are coming in, there's evidence to suggest that when they come in for consultation, the primary reason is not the pain itself. The reason why they come in for evaluation for consultation is because it is preventing them from doing something that they want to be able to do. The pain itself is not usually the reason why they come in. And so our job is to identify, hey, what do you want to be able to do? Right? And so they'll offer whatever that is for them. And then our job is to develop some sort of a physical you know, strategy to work them back towards being able to do what they want to do. That is important above all else for this population. Get them back to doing what they want to do. Once they're at that stage, then we can say, hey, have you heard of these general physical activity guidelines that we like to try to get everybody working towards, doing resistance training, doing aerobic training because of yeah. all these benefits? But when they're coming in disabled from their persistent pain, that's not really the time to be throwing this other stuff at them necessarily, unless they already want to lift weights, which I would say is likely uncommon. Yeah. But prevalent in some, in, in, in our selected population who come to us, right? So key number one is definitely finding out what is important to them to be able to do, and then developing a strategy that they can buy into to work towards that. Sometimes one of a, a friend of mine who I've met who um, is a clinician in this space, he travels around and does seminars on this. His name is Ben Cormack. He's a funny guy and he is big on a biopsychosocial approach to exercise prescription for individuals with pain. And he talks about this a lot, a lot and I went to his course and, and, and hung out with him and we, we talked about this stuff a lot. And uh, he demonstrated a lot of his strategies and his approaches to this. He tries to make it not feel like exercise to the individual. He tries to get them to do activities that feel more like play, like actually for adults to like play in the clinic and do certain things that again, have some expectancy violation to them that maybe they didn't think that they were able to do. So somebody who has chronic back pain, he would have them maybe, you know, they would get literally like a BOSU ball or something and they would bend over and grab it and then roll it to him across the floor and they'd roll it back and forth. Meanwhile, demonstrating to themselves that they can bend over and roll this ball and it's okay. And that's the first step again to getting your foot in the door and finding some method for progression. So sometimes for some people, it's about making it not feel like exercise, particularly if they're not interested in exercise but finding out what they want to be able to do and finding out a physical strategy that they can buy into to work towards that. And sometimes, the, sorry, Ben Cormack. Oh yeah, Ben, ben Cormack. Cormack's yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a funny guy. So 
that's a, a good resource in terms of exercise prescription for patients with, with persistent pain. Um, he's, he's a good guy, uh, but definitely have to find out what activities are meaningful to the individual, what matters to them, and then how can I help you get there? What kind of things do you think would help you get there? You notice how with our behavior change approaches, we are asking a lot of questions of the individual to elicit this stuff from them rather than top down saying, oh, you just need a deadlift, you know? It's like, Bro. no, <laughs> they don't necessarily need a deadlift Everybody in, order needs... to, in order to improve their pain. We would like them to in the long term, but everybody needs to deadlift. <laughs> yeah, eventually that would be nice, but they still don't have. To. I think Magnuson said that if you cannot deadlift, life is not worth living. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it seems, like to, it seems to be to a little restricted. Yeah, this <laughs> review is a little restricted. All right, does motor control training matter? Are gross movements greater than smaller, more controlled movements? especially in the beginner, i.e. if someone is struggling with driving the knees out in the squat, do you train with smaller movements such as clamshells, et cetera? So does motor training matter? Motor control. Training. Motor control, yeah. <laughs> does motor control training matter in isolation? I mean, it can be beneficial, particularly for individuals who are unable to have a sort of framework for contracting a certain set of muscles or moving in a certain way. So for example, somebody when you say, yeah, contract, squeeze your lower back into extension, and they have no idea how to do that. And you're like, no, no, but your lower back, squeeze it, please. And they can't do it. And so you put your hand on their back. It's, Come on, right against my hand, squeeze there, nothing. So then you put them on the floor, they do some supermans, and they can, uh, you got a lot of flies. You're like pig pen right now. It's not me, bro. <laughs> it's us. No, no, no. I noticed that there are distinctly on one side. <laughs> Uh, so, and you put them on the floor and they do some supermans, or you put them on a, a back extension bench and they do so, and they get some blood pumped in the area and then now they can all of a sudden feel that with that area and they're able to contract it. Well, that's one type of motor control training. Um, I don't think that that is something that we use frequently. Uh, mainly, I, I think our idea of technique, uh, and particularly in the large, the compound movements is this sort of self-resolving um, uh, a type of, of technique improvement, meaning that you take somebody who's very new to training, and you try to teach them how to bench press, for example, and you show them all the main pillars of the bench press, and uh, when they're actually benching, the bar is all over the place, you know, and you kind of say, hey, I would do it this way, and you know, work on this. But you're not gonna hammer it all out on the first session. The second session, they've got some take-home homework cues to work on, it gets a little bit better. Third session, a little bit better. Fourth session, a little bit better. Fortieth session, they bench like a seasoned veteran. You gotta give them kind of this leeway to practice, experiment, get their cerebellum to say, nope, that's not the way you do it. Nope, that's not the way you do it. Ooh, that's better. And then yep. they get to build this motor pattern in their supplemental motor cortex, which is in your cerebral cortex, but the cerebellum's telling them that was wrong, do it differently. All right, thank you, motor learning. Um, so I don't think that I would automatically move to a smaller movement in order to correct one of these things, unless it's like this long-standing persistent issue that is causing um, sort of either reduction in performance, or I perceive to be reducing a person's ability to participate in recreational or competitive pursuits. Uh, but otherwise, if somebody's knees are caving in on the squat, there's some weight that they can squat and keep their knees out, or I need to adjust the stance because it's too wide and they like actually can't, yep. or adjust their foot position or uh, the weight, and usually there's something I can, I can address there rather than switching to clamshells. Because I just don't know about the transference between clamshells and squats. 
but to suggest that all motor control training movements are essentially useless for essentially everyone would be a gross overstatement. I don't think that would make that. Yeah, my question here would be to define what motor control training is. All right, so what about supermans for lower back extension? I'd say that's just a movement, right? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would view the squat as a motor control exercise. Well, you have I'd to view, have motor control. Sure, I would view the deadlift as a motor control exercise. I'd view whatever goal movement you're trying to train towards sure. as an exercise in motor control to execute said movement. Sure. So I don't know that there are categorically unique motor control exercises that we can like deploy Hold as on. needed for this kind of a Do thing. Do you think that there's an exercise that requires no motor control? Uh, no, that's that, kind of the point, kind of the point here, right? And so it's just reflexive. Yeah. So I don't know that I, I can't think of a situation really almost never have had to regress to some sort of like, you know, very, very non-specific movement, like a clamshell or something to get somebody to be able to squat the way I would like them to squat. And that's not patting myself on the back for like remarkable coach skills. But rather that, again, within our kind of view and model of, of the significance of like technique and things like that, and also recognizing that in the world of motor learning, allowing for greater movement variability, we have pretty clear evidence that allowing for more movement variability can actually improve motor learning. Meaning that if I'm introducing you to a new movement, yep. rigidly restricting you to only be able to move in a particular way actually makes it take longer for you to learn how to do that yeah, compared too. to allowing you to explore different strategies to execute the movement. So allowing for movement variability has been shown to accelerate motor learning. And yeah. so I tend to not be super nitpicky on some of this stuff. And in fact, sometimes we had somebody this weekend who I was coaching on the squat and he had an issue with consistently getting on his toes when he was getting in the bottom. And I was cueing him off his toes, off his toes, off his toes. And he, wouldn't really come off of his toes. And so we had talked about the use of certain movement variations on the squat in order to expose him to alternative ways of executing the squat as potentially a way to acquire, acquire new strategies to stay off of his toes. Maybe instead of low bar squatting all the time, he introduces a high bar squat, change a few variables in the picture and find new, some new strategies to execute this movement. So all of this is an exercise in motor control. I think that you know, demanding, uh, I would, again, caution the question asker here a, a, away from perfectionism, of course. But of course, we also want to acquire the skills to execute these movements. And I think that, you know, it doesn't take a ton of coaching to get people within a reasonable degree of acceptableness that then refines itself on its own. So on my deadlift platform this weekend, had a trainee who was having a lot of just kind of slop and wiggling around during the movement. I told her, I said, this is not something that I can really coach. It's just something that's going to work itself out as you continue to practice this movement because the wiggling around is different on every single rep. So there's not like one cue that I can that's use for this. Variable, yeah. That's typical. That's like, you know, when you're an infant and you stand up for the first time and you're deciding how to take your first few steps, they all look different, right? As you gain your bearings about, hey, how does the world work, right? Here you're gaining bearings on how the deadlift works or how the squat works. So allowing for motor variability in the early stages of motor learning, I think is actually useful and another case for using variation a bit earlier rather than rigidly prescribing you know, a single perfect way to move right from day one. Would you say that it increases the learning curve or it extends We're not gonna the go there. We're not gonna go there. I just wanna say for the record that if you increase the learning curve, if you <laughs> if make the steeper, slope steeper, yes. then you are achieving mastery Then faster. you're learning faster. All right, fine. Compared Sorry. to a sustained. We'll agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs>
one of the beauties about DC blocks is they're very versatile. They're made out of recycled plastics, 100% recycled plastics here in the United States. They're two inches tall and they're only 10 pounds weight in each one. You can stack them up as high as you want. You can do weight. Originally they were designed uh, for weight lifting exercises to train high block or low block snatch pulls and clean and jerk pulls. Uh, however, you can do Bulgarian squats with them, uh, various plyometrics. You can uh, check out the 101 uses for DC blocks, deficit lifts, deficit deadlifts, block deadlifts, uh, step ups and all kinds of things like that. Yeah, they're great. I've definitely, I've done a bunch of pulls off them. I've done, use them for split squats and everything else. The best thing is they're much lighter than like a traditional set of jerk blocks, oh. which, <laughs> yeah, it's, you can actually move them around your gym. And then where can people uh, find out more about them? You guys got a website, I, I assume. Well, first of all, you can find more out at www.dcblocksusa.com. Uh, now, Derek, take us through, uh, just give us a brief synopsis of your weightlifting history, because we're going to ask you a weightlifting history question. I want people to know if they're not familiar with you, uh, where you come from and what, you, what you've accomplished. I started back when I was about 16 years old. I watched a couple, weightlifting was very big on television back in the days of ABC Wide World of Sports. So, and I, I played football and I was very small but fast. And it seemed like the high school weightlifting program was just for bigger, stronger guys. Half squats, deadlifts, bench press and things like that. And I was doing, back then you could buy magazines on the uh, grocery store shelves about weightlifting, muscle and fitness, strength and health, Iron Man magazine. But I figured, oh, I see these guys putting weights overhead. What's this about? I asked my dad if he knew anybody coaching that. It just so happens his best friend was coaching in Belleville at the time. Uh, and he took me down there uh, when I was 16. And I, Ted, taught, Ted Frank taught me the clean and jerk. And yeah. I just fell in love with her. That's all I wanted to do right then. I just fell in love. Yeah. And then uh, you've had quite a story career. So you end up going to the Olympics twice. 1984, 1988. I uh, was in the Olympic Games. 1980, I qualified for my Junior World Championships and Junior Pan American Championships, got third there. Uh, and then uh, several World Championships, uh, uh, several National Championships, and several uh, European and Asian different championships in Australia, Oceania, Europe, things like that. Very cool, very cool. Now, so this is important to give people context. So uh, we're gonna ask you how you were around when people were training the press during the heyday when it was still a, a, a contested lift. Um, how did people press so much weight overhead? How did people do this? Well, to, to be true, I thank God they didn't, I didn't compete in the press, I'd have never made the Olympics or whatever. But I started in 76 and that was right after they got rid of the press in 72. However, the guys I trained with were very good at the press and they still did the press. Got it. And so uh, uh, I was always amazed because my daughter knows that we have a terrible family history and we come from descendants of T-Rex. Big legs, <laughs> big butt big back, but little spindly arms. We can only feed ourselves, basically. We don't like to do push-ups and we don't like to do presses. Yeah, so, uh, what with the, so, I was, they, they taught me a little bit about the press. And when you power clean, you're supposed to catch the power clean with nice posture. Maybe you, you go from a jumping position with your legs to a squat position with your feet, but you catch the bar nice and high. Well, the Olympic press was a power, essentially a power clean at the time, or a split clean. But then you sit, instead of catching it here, get ready for the jerk, you catch it and you immediately sit back. Right. That's your that's your position for the press. And then it becomes, I don't have much flexibility in my back, so I won't do it justice, but you're sitting back like this, as opposed to here. Then, so they give you the command to press, just like they do in, in powerlifting, and you put up, and then you, you bend back. 
and then stand up. So you're saying that you should catch it while you're laid back. Ideally, that's how you would start the press. Yeah, because the, the start command for the press is, is you catch it, but then you just you can't stand there and then lean back. Right. So if you look at no nonsense old school weightlifting on Facebook, the guy really posts some great videos of people pressing, and it becomes oh, that's pretty apparent how they just they clean it and just automatically sit like this. Yep, and then they launch and from it from the front. It looks sure like you're fine. You're pretty pretty upright because the referees are actually lower than you anyway because you're on stage. Right. So then you just throw it up there, and then also you're not supposed to rebend your you bend your knees. But how can they see that? Uh, you're supposed to have your knees straight. Well, sort of the politics got into things when you have a little bit of knee bend. Well, maybe they can see that, maybe they don't. Maybe a Soviet uh, referee doesn't see sees an American but doesn't see a Soviet guy. Right. And then vice versa, same with uh, Soviet, you know, American judges. Disqualified a Soviet lifter versus you know, Cold War stuff. Yeah, well, that's really insightful, Derek. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, appreciate it. See the sky, see the clouds amongst the sun. See the day for everything it could be. Stop treading on that snooze button. Run. Open your eyes and see everything it was.